0: Welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on America, the Indo-Pacific, China, and the fate of the world. I'm John Yu, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Misha Oslin, another fellow at the Hoover Institution. Misha, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. And Misha's going to introduce our great guest who has a new book. We're really excited to have him.
1: We do, John. We're, we're In fact, we're becoming sort of a book podcast, which I like. I like that we're doing that. We're, we're focusing. We had Adrian Woolridge to talk about his book. Uh, we've had other books. And today, we are happy to welcome David Shambaugh to the Pacific Century. Uh, David, uh, as many of you know, is the Gaston Segur Professor of Asian Studies, Political Science, and International Affairs. And also the founding director of the China Policy Program in the oh. Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. So, for once on this program, we we uh, we here in D.C. outnumber the Stanford and and uh, California contingent. Yeah, but you know who's winning all the Nobel prizes these days? Berkeley and Stanford. Another
0: another one just added yesterday.
1: That, and that economics that is true and <laughs> and it all goes to the benefit of Washington DC so we're it's, it's it's all a wash but we're very happy to have david here uh david has been uh teaching and writing about china uh asia but china in particular for 50 years now uh he was uh before coming to George Washington. He was at the London School of Oriental and African Studies. He's been at the Brookings Institution. He's also been at the State Department and National Security Council, and he has a new book, as John mentioned, China's Leaders from Mao to Now. Excellent rhyming on that, David. Welcome to the Pacific Century.
2: (laughs) Great. Thank you, Misha and John, very much for inviting me. I'm, I'm really pleased to be part of your podcast.
1: Well thank you. So let's 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 jump right to it. Um there there are so many questions that people have about China and about its leadership few people better than yourself uh, to be able to talk about it. Let's let's get to the big question that everyone asks. Is Xi Jinping the most powerful leader since Mao and if so what does that actually mean? Why should we care?
2: Well if you ask it since Mao I think uh, the answer is yes. Um, of course, one has to define power uh, as well. That was part of your question. Um, but I would not say he's as powerful as Mao was um, by a number of, of metrics. But since Mao passed, um, you know, we've gone through Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and now Xi Jinping. Indeed, my book goes through each of those leaders and individual chapters. Yeah, uh, he's more powerful to my mind than was Deng Xiaoping and certainly Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. <clears throat> in terms of his, uh, you know, sort of outsized personal stamp uh, that he's putting on the entire system, the entire country, and I dare say the entire region, in Indo-Pacific region, and, and beyond in the world, it's really rather astounding, actually, in the 21st century, second <laughs> decade of the 21st century, country that large that a single ruler... Uh, could have that kind of outsized impact, Um, but he has done so in less than a decade. Um, We can talk about the fragilities and and the weaknesses, which are there, I think, but no, goodness, um, you know, compared to Zhang, Hu or even Deng. Deng, we can talk about too, but Deng was uh, a sort of removed leader. He was not a hands-on leader. He was a macro, not a micro manager, and he discharged, uh, delegated, um, p- policy making and responsibility to other individuals, notably Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, as well as to provinces. I mean, he geographically, as I'm talking about Deng now, delegated uh, responsibility uh, downwards from Beijing. So. You know, I wouldn't, he was certainly a powerful uh, and highly influential leader. He set China on the path to what it has become today. But uh, in terms of an individual's stamp on the entire system and the entire country, um, Deng does not even compare to Xi Jinping.
1: So it raises an, an interesting question, which you uh, which you actually alluded to and, and, and referenced, which is in a country so big, you know, it's surprising that one person, one individual, one man can have, uh, such impact and, and make such a difference. And uh, I'm wondering if that gets to a deeper question about how we understand China for for a long time, uh, at least part of the narrative has been to try to look at China, uh, of course, as any other state, as a state with many competing interests within it, many competing uh, types of groups, uh, but certainly the growth of of an international business community, the growth of an international (coughs) academic community, uh, civil society, uh, and and the like, in, in many ways to norm China with our understanding of how states work. And yet your own study has always, or not always, but it's largely been about leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we understand China? Do we understand it as, I mean, not a patrimonial state, the way that Russia was under a czar, but something where the individual and those with power count for more than other segments of civil society? Or has China, the People's Republic, over the course of its history, become more of uh, of a pluralistic type society in which different groups have different voices and access to different levels of power? Great
2: question, uh, Misha. Um, I would define you know, Xi Jinping's China as a kind of dichotomous type of rule. Um, he on the one hand and the party as an instrument, as an institutional instrument on the other. So again, if you compare Xi to Mao, Mao was the former. I mean, Mao's personal imprint just affected the, everything in, in the country during that time, but the party itself was not a a particularly important instrument to him, in fact, quite to the contrary. He spent, certainly post-1966, but even before 66, trying to destroy and attack and tear down the party. He distrusted institutions. So you had, that was a very, you might almost say, feudal political system, you know, with a single leader, you know, and then the masses, and they sycophantically revered him it was um, not a mature or institutionalized political system at all under Mao. Uh, Xi Jinping, you can say the same thing about um, in terms of his personality. Again, it's very sycophantic. It's a throwback to the Maoist era. Um, you study his thought; he publishes his his, his thinking in, in multiple volumes. You know, one thousand seven hundred and seventy-four pages, three volumes of China's th- think of Xi's thinking on governance and. This, and that, counting. It is. It's and not, not over counting. yet. <laughs> that's right. So you know, there's a there's a kind of a return to political f- feudalism. I don't know what Francis Fukuyama would call it, but that's the term that comes to mind in terms of she's individual personalized rule but the big difference between Mao and Xi is the party she uh, rules through the institution he is not trying to destroy the institution in fact he's worked very hard in his 9 years to rebuild the institution and he when he took over <clears throat> it's fair to say that he recognized that the that the party uh, was atrophying to use the subtitle of my previous book. He and I, if we'd sat down and had a conversation in 2011, we would have found ourselves in pretty much complete agreement about the state of the party. We would not have been in agreement about how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Um, but nine years, but the party was in trouble, and he was obsessed with the collapse of the Soviet Union. He studied it very carefully. He drew certain sets of lessons from it, different lessons than Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao drew, um, and so nine years later we have a much stronger instrument, and Xi Jinping rules through the instrument. now the party but also the internal security apparatus and you know other elements of the state and and party structure so that's a huge difference between xi and mao it's a dichotomous view you have this kind of feudalistic it's an odd dichotomy you know it's a kind of contradictory thing you have this feudalistic element with him no citizens you know you you ask are there constituencies are people empowered in that society answers absolutely not um, and then you have a kind of Leninist uh, party state, you know, that he rules through and controls. This is a controlocracy today. There's um, one is another way to put it.
1: Controlocracy. Have you used that before? That's a great analogy. I actually, that is, it just just popped into my mind. I, I, I see a, an op-ed from you coming up with that because that's that's a great. It's a great. Um, segue to another question. Not only, of course, David, have you watched China for 50 years? You've watched Americans watching China for 50 years, and you've been part of that. Uh, your comments on the party that you've just made, I think, are, are, are critical. And I'm wondering if you think that Americans understand the nature of the Chinese party state today, the nature of, of power and most importantly, the role of the party and, and the ideology that she has brought back to the fore. Do they understand that? or or is that not that important because states are just black boxes interacting with each other uh, regardless of their internal uh, form, you know, their internal um, mm-hmm. consolidation. They just they all act the same on the international stage. Or do we need to understand something different about uh, China and the party uh, and the like? Uh, first,
2: just minor corrective. I haven't been studying China for 50 years. I'm not quite that old. 40, 40,
1: yes. Um, <clears throat> I think you said 19, didn't you say 1973 in the book? I'm just rounding it up. I, That's when I, I first I...
2: started studying Chinese politics, yeah, okay. and Chinese Chinese language a couple of years after that. 49. So I, I was an undergraduate student. <laughs> um, anyway, it's been a while. <clears throat> um, So uh, You know, that's a good question. And I've also, you ask, you say I've studied American views of China. I've also done the opposite. My own PhD dissertation was about Chinese views of America, China's America watchers. So I've worked in this perception issue, mutual perception issue, really my entire career. But your question about do Americans understand uh, the nature of the Chinese Communist Party? Um, The answer is the average American, absolutely not. And even do policy elites here in Washington? I would say not really. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, though, I give great credit to Matthew Pottinger and uh, the Trump administration. I don't give the Trump administration credit for much, I have to be honest. Um, but um, Pottinger is a China specialist. He understood the the Leninist party state up close firsthand from his years working there as a journalist. And he got the entire executive branch, I dare say the Congress and the intelligence community, almost single-handedly, to focus on the party as an instrument of control and rule, a Leninist party. You know, the Chinese Communist Party is kind of an abstract term for most Americans. What does that mean? First of all, communism? Most Americans dismiss that it's a communist party. I would suggest, first of all, they shouldn't. It is a communist party. That's not an accident. Uh, and that's what they aspire to. That's what they take their uh, you know, guidance from, classic Marxism-Leninism. Um, so, and they rule, you know, as all Leninist parties do, uh, through a series of internal control instruments. So, I don't think Americans and even educated policymakers really get it. You don't know, you know, a Leninist party actually is like an amoeba. I tell my students it's like a, an amoeba or an organism that burrows its way into the body uh, and then spreads like a cancer and control and and, and metastasizes and controls takes over the body that's what the party that's what party cells do that's what a leninist system does as distinct from other authoritarian systems okay um so the party cells and committees are embedded in every institution in society and they have something there called the nomenklatura which i'm sure you are familiar with soviet term uh that's an elite within the elite um you know that are assigned 2800 in china 2,800 positions that are controlled by the Organization Department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, you know, straight out of Lenin 101. Uh, And they control everything from the big banks, the big corporations, the big universities, media, and uh, other institutions in society. So think of the Leninist Party, for our listeners, as, as maybe that metaphor, an amoeba that just burrows its way in. And then infects and controls and takes over the body politic.
0: So, uh, let me ask. Uh, I wanted to follow up on your point about the current uh, chairman, uh, uh, president, president Xi. So, he, um, one thing I was—I mean—I really enjoyed the book, and I, I'm quite persuaded by your argument that he, you know, represents something different. You know, <coughs> second most powerful leader since Mao. Uh, the question as a court. Chicken and the egg issue, which is, is it him that changed Chinese politics, or was it that there was, you know, a party elite, you know, the the different institutions and hierarchies that chose him? You know, that they want that it's not just him, but it's a greater, uh, broader group of people who want right China to have this new American you call semi American military to stamp down on corruption to really restore ideological control was was it him or was it the party leadership or putting it differently could it just as have been someone else that they picked but they would have still uh, pursued a lot of these policies that we're seeing now
2: john good question i think it could have been somebody else too Hmm. um i my kind of meta way of viewing china is through bureaucracies bureaucracies run that country not individuals even the uh, general secretary of the party and the president of the country to be sure that individual has more power and agency and influence than anybody else but china invented bureaucracy and given what i just said about leninism and how leninism functions uh this is what runs China, and there are different types of bureaucracies, is the point I'd like to make. Our colleague uh, down in San Diego, Susan Shirk, I think, is the one who coined the term control bureaucracy. She she wrote something once trying to distinguish different types of Chinese bureaucracies, and she singled out several that were what she called control bureaucracies. The propaganda department, the organization department, the internal security services, the military um uh, in those those four in particular um, <clears throat> their job you know is is control it's not empowerment it's not um you know to give you know, license to the citizenry to you know pursue anything from their economic aspirations to their intellectual aspirations and so the, these are four really well endowed resourced um bureaucracies and they uh, were coming, they were by 2008. I write in the book actually, they were becoming very frustrated with the neoliberal reforms of the Hu Jintao and late Jiang Zemin period that were being instituted. And I detail them in the book in some length by a man named Zeng Ching Hong. Zeng Ching Hong, uh, not a household name, <laughs> right. but darned it, he is he was really influential and important, and he's the one who. Oversaw the entire study of the Soviet collapse and East European collapses and the lessons to be drawn therefrom. And he, in 2004, uh, there was a big plenum of the Central Committee. He oversaw that. He gave a big speech and says, These comrades, these are the lessons we should take away. And he argued that if we don't manage opening, I repeat, manage opening, opening the society, opening the economy, opening intellectual life. <clears throat> basically empowering the society we will fall from power we will be overthrown from power so that was his conclusion and what i call school number one takeaway from from gorbachev and the soviet collapse is that gorbachev actually was on the right track but he came too late and the system was too stressed and too broken it just collapsed so Zong and his colleagues said no we have to manage this um Zheng, however, had to retire in 2018 for age reasons. <laughs> it was one of the reforms that Deng Xiaoping had put into place, right? Age 69, you're you're out. So he had to step down. Nobody took his place to advocate that, uh, those, that kind of political reform. And so you have in 2019, or sorry, uh, 2009, 10, actually, I was living in Beijing that year as a Fulbright Scholar, you have a shift internally and externally, I think those of us Like Misha, who studied Chinese foreign policy, will all date China's assertiveness, or is the term that's used, the year of assertiveness, 2009-10. Well, same thing domestically, because these control bureaucracies asserted themselves. They said, look, we're losing control, and we will be overthrown if you go further down this path. So Xi Jinping then comes into power. I know I'm going on too long about this, but it's really important. (laughs) and um empowers those bureaucracies himself and so he benefits from them so that's i guess my my short it's take a, on... it's
0: interesting you know we're all uh, sort of we're all academics it's an interesting uh the, what you say shows the influence of historical example on the current chinese mind right? it seems really shaped by the fall of the Soviet Union. And they want to avoid, that, may not necessarily apply to China at all, but they. it seems they have taken their whole worldview from what they saw there. And then, of course, in your book, you talk a lot about the effect of the lessons from the history of imperial China mm-hmm. and how they still think of it. So it's just, it's sort of uh, like Americans still worried about Vietnam, right? Yeah. And, and, and the way we think about foreign policy. I, I think that's remarkable given it's this kind of Leninist. you know, rational bureaucracy, but they're all motivated in a way by this fear of repeating what happened to Gorbachev and the Soviets. And it
2: illustrates, and Americans and our listeners should appreciate, it illustrates a fundamental insecurity on their part that has been there since even since 49, when they came to power, I was going to say, but even before 49. They are constantly afraid of subversion, uh, from the outside, even from within and being overthrown. So it's like putting, playing whack-a-mole, or putting fingers in the dikes constantly.
0: So, Dave, before um, we go back to Misha, I have one last question because uh, the thing about the book I really enjoyed the most, I hope people look at it, for at least for this reason, is that you actually bring American presidential studies <laughs> and American leaderships. I'm not sure if American leadership studies is a real field, but the study of the presidency is a real field. And so you uh, use this work, uh, you know, people who study the presidency know well uh, the work of Fred Greenstein, right. who wrote this famous book called The Hidden Hand Presidency, and then... You know, tried to break down the nature, the qualities of great American presidents. And mm-hmm. so I refer people to that. But so um, you list those factors and it's great, it really, you evaluate the different Chinese leaders on this. But the one thing I wanted to ask you is uh, who was the most effective leader? So that's the thing that Greenstein, you're right, Greenstein does go through, right. shows who's better, who's worse. You in the writing, you don't really say who's, uh, and maybe it's hard to say what makes quote unquote effective. And China, does it control the bureaucracy or make everybody you know, wealthier or restore China's standing in the world? But I, I noticed, I thought, mm. you know, that you didn't take a stand based on American views of how we evaluate who's a good president versus an ineffective president. How do you rank the Chinese leaders in order? Oh goodness. <laughs> goodness. Well, you know, when
2: I luckily there's oh, only
1: five. So yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah that's true. So <laughs> you know, when I have done all my books, I like puzzles. I like to when I start a research project in a book, I don't know where I'm gonna wind up and come out. Um and I kind of learn and find you know things as I go along along the way. It's always been like that with all my previous books. So in this case, I dug into this uh, literature on leadership studies of which it's um, quite a large body Uh, literature, not just about American presidents, but psychiatrists have written a lot about it. I talk about um, the psychologist who writes about
0: emotional intelligence. Yeah, one thing people should know about your book is that uh, it's almost a work of political psychology is when I was trying to figure out how do I place it, Uh, unlike mm. a lot of other books that I've read about China. one is really, a, it's very similar to American yeah. books about the political psychology of leaders. It's really interesting. Well,
2: that's because I've always been very influenced by the political culture school yeah. approach mm-hmm. to comparative politics, and Lucian Pai in particular. <clears throat> have enormous respect for, I think had the greatest insights into China, um that of any Sinologist. So see,
0: I'm the lawyer here, so I'm cross-examining <laughs> you. I still want your answer on who the okay. five leaders are in order <laughs> of effective. effective,
2: well, effectiveness. You've got to define, <laughs> I mean, the, it's, it's quite right, you know, um, but one has to start with what's effective. Is, yeah. What do you think a is Chinese, a Chinese would say maintaining order mm-hmm. trumps everything else? Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Um, Xi Jinping I mean, is probably the most effective, because uh-huh. all, the pre- all the four predecessors for Xi Jinping saw enormous uh, disorder, social mm-hmm. disorder, in the country. Yeah. And, and, and country. some
0: of them, like Mao, generated it themselves. Exactly. <laughs> right? yeah. um, if okay, so Xi's
2: number was first. <laughs> well, if you use that criteria, yeah. a Westerner, yeah. um, you know Fukuyama and others would use kind of liberal criteria, yeah. empowering the citizenry,
0: yeah. very, uh, very, consent, very economic uh, well-being, and There, so I would on. say Jiang Zemin. Oh, it interesting. surprise! A lot of, it may surprise yeah.
2: a lot of readers. I yeah. actually give him high marks, uh, particularly given you know when he came to power, mm. uh, how little power he had. Uh, nobody knew who he was, but he lasted 13 years. Everybody thought he'd be a transitional figure one to two years. Well, he lasted 13, uh, and he really built a series of constituent bureaucratic uh, power bases, and he he empowered, I call him in the in the book, a bureaucratic politician. Yeah. He, each of these leaders I have different adjectives for, but Zhang, I, you know, in economic terms, foreign policy terms, he overcame the Tiananmen uh, massacre, stigma, he launched China into the world, military modernization, Hong Kong return, uh, and opening of the political system, kind of stealthy opening of politics. So I think Jiang Zemin, actually, uh, it is really going to surprise people, had the greatest impact. People would think Deng Xiaoping. Well, yeah, sure, Deng had an enormous impact. But it, was, it wasn't it was as comprehensive as as Zhang's. Hu Jintao, I argue in the book, was not terribly impactful, but I think over time history is going to... Uh, view him a little better Um, you know we don't have time to go into all that but he wasn't a complete non-entity he launched a number of of important reforms, he reoriented the country in a more progressive, socially conscious direction, but he just didn't follow through and implement them so you know, it depends, Mr. Lawyer.
0: On, <laughs> no, this was this is why we do cross election. examination. We got some really interesting answers <laughs> out of you that uh, you didn't want to
1: initially give. <laughs> David, don't let him treat you as a hostile witness. He does that all the time.
0: <laughs> okay, oh, yeah, I, I, this is really a you know, Zhang is not the guy I would have thought you would have picked. That was
1: really interesting. So yeah back to you Misha. <laughs> so uh, I am I'm, I'm not a lawyer so I'm I'm just a happy uh, a happy camper to to chat about these things in a in a friendly way David so I want to I want to ask um you know, again, but so both you and I are sitting here in washington, d c. and And of course, the reason that people in Washington focus on China is because it's ultimately about America, American foreign policy, America, and the world, so on, and so forth. Right. Um, J- John asked you to rate the um the Chinese leaders. I'd actually like you to rate the u s. presidents on their China policy and and try to help us understand what you actually think. A good U.S.-China policy is, and we're in the midst. I would argue, as again, as someone who comes at this from the outside of of Asian in, in Asian studies, but outside directly uh, Chinese studies, um, in the midst of of quite a almost a generational, but certainly almost even an ideological clash amongst America-China watchers on the nature of China, the nature of the relationship, the nature of U.S. policy. So why don't we sort of close out with your ranking of American presidents? Who got it right in dealing with China? And what does that really tell us about where we need to go forward with the Biden administration and those who follow them?
2: Oh, goodness, Misha. Um, Well, I guess the first thing comes to mind is that China isn't static. So an American president, each of the American presidents has had to deal with a different type of China at the time they were in office. Right? It's not like China is a static variable that doesn't change and the American presidents rotate in and out.
1: That is a great so, point. That's really important, by the way, to say, because, again, people like to treat yeah. China as a black box, right? It's going to act just like every yeah. other country. That's a really critical point.
2: You know, but thinking back, just in my brain, in my mind, as you were asking it, you know, I think George Bush 43, actually, um, probably, I would give uh, strong marks to, I give strong marks to Clinton, in his second term as well but not over all eight years but that's why i say it depends when you when you uh, what where china is when each of these men were in office so when clinton first came into office it was right after Tiananmen, you know and butch, butchers from baghdad to beijing and i think he you know, we can debate that period. But anyway, I think, George, uh, One, one, what one can say is during the eight years of Bush, after the EP3 crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, that was a major um, challenge to the relationship. <clears throat> and um, then we had 9-11. So from 9-11 to the end of his presidency, U.S.-China relationship was the most stable and productive it has been ever, I would say. Um, including, you know, in the early years. I worked in the Carter administration at the time of, in the run-up to normalization under Carter. I have enormous, by the way, respect for President Carter and Brzezinski and, and others who oversaw the relationship at that time. I could be a little biased because I, I worked for them. Um, uh, Reagan, um, yeah, you know, actually, to come think of it, Reagan's China policy during the 80s was very successful. Um, So that he probably would come top, come to think of it, in my list, followed by Bush 43. I do not give Bush 41 very high marks. In fact, I'm reading right now his Beijing diary, it's called, when he was the pseudo-ambassador to China to the U.S. liaison office in the early 1970s. What did he do with his time? Played a lot of tennis, went to cocktail parties with other ambassadors, and was really at sea. He didn't understand where he was. I mean, it's an entertaining book to read. But then when he became president, he had this naive view of China and and Deng Xiaoping. Of course, Bush liked to personify diplomacy. You know, let me just pick up the phone and call my good friend X in country Y. That's the way he thought of Deng Xiaoping. And he tried to literally call Deng in the aftermath of the June 4th massacre. Deng wouldn't answer. (laughs) And but you know, I've just been through the Bush Archives by the way, at Texas a m University mm-hmm. last year. They do not reflect well at all <clears throat> on President Bush and how he tried to manage and you know the relationship and skirt aside the atrocities of the of the massacre and put things back on track you know bush forty one i'm sorry i don't I don't have much respect for him uh, in china policy. Clinton, as I say, the second four years pretty good um uh, Trump um, really reoriented China policy in a way that I think was very necessary for our country. We'd had a big domestic uh, debate and kind of gestalt about China. Trump, the Trump administration, and I have to underline the, name, the word administration, actually really reoriented China policy and gave Americans a wake-up call that they needed. Trump himself, however, was his own worst enemy because of his obsession with trade deficits, his unpredictability, and his own naivete about China and Xi Jinping. He had the same fixation with Xi Jinping that Bush thought he had with Deng Xiaoping. Um, But overall, I I think the, you know, what the other big problem with the Trump administration is they didn't work with allies. So if you ask me what's an effective American China policy, answer one is embedding it with allies in the Asia-Pacific, region and Europe Europe and beyond. You cannot have a singular American policy. You have to have a multinational American policy as backstopped and shared by many other uh, partners and allies. So the Biden administration is off to a very good start in that regard, with the exception of the way they handled the Australian submarine deal. Um, And they really get it in terms of ally uh enlisting allies in a china policy it's going to be tough though so i guess looking back over all these i've probably missed a couple of presidents reagan you know that that was during the reform years of of dung so you again you have to ask what where was china when each of these people were in office so it's pretty easy to have a relationship with reformists opening china in the 80s so you know reagan kind of took advantage of that um so I don't know, just off the top of my head, they each had their pluses and these had their minuses, but all of them have had this sort of American missionary complex, I, I would argue, had in previous books. They don't really understand China, and they, they kind of uh, thrust onto China various assumptions. We talked a minute ago about perceptions, right? So the Americans have a series of, of perceptions, misperceptions, assumptions, biases, stereotypes about various places on the planet and China. So they thrust them onto China, you know, and then China doesn't quite fit these stereotypes. And then they get, dis, they get disillusioned and so on. So you know we need a we need uh put everybody in, in government in our society through a crash course on china what it is because i think there's just not a great deal of depth of understanding to be honest with you in the scholarly community of course um but not uh to the extent that we we need to have it as a society
1: well that's that's uh, great you've actually recap a lot of things that we've we've touched on here before, which is the question of of the depth of of our uh knowledge of China, you know, area studies uh and the like. I like your your point about the missionary impulse of American presidents. It reminds me of uh my my former colleague Jonathan Spence's well, I think it was his first book, To Change China, which was literally about the missionaries, but yes. that, you know, that is sort of an animating American American impulse. But again, I, I'm I'm drawn, David, back to your point about the fact that China has changed China changes China continues to change and and so we need to understand that as 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 we approach it, um, well, this was wonderful. There's a lot more we could talk about the the book again from David Shambaugh of George Washington University as China's leaders from Mao to now. Um, David, I, I didn't mean to imply that you were old when I said 50 years. We venerate age on this program because <laughs> both John and I are are just tyros. And uh, uh, whether it's been 48 or, or 30 years, you've you've done an enormous amount uh, in helping. I appreciate your comments, by the way, on Lucian Pai, that people should be uh, reading Lucian Pai as well. And, of course, you dedicate the book to Roderick McFarquhar, who recently right. passed and who was another, right. um, uh, you know, long-time uh, and, and deeply experienced China watcher. So there's there's a lot of history in your book uh, mm-hmm. ab- about our relationship with China as well as the history of China. So uh, for the Pacific Century, for John Yu, David, thanks so much for joining us. My
2: great pleasure, Misha and John. Really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thanks for joining us. Well, Misha, that was a great interview with David Shambaugh, but we should also uh, take the chance, I think, to uh, discuss some of the latest developments in China. And it seems to me uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest story going on right now is what looks like the impending bankruptcy of China's largest real estate investment uh, slash Development company called Evergrande. What do you think about that, Misha?
1: Well, this is this has been an ongoing, a developing story uh, over the past month or so, and yet I think it also points to um, the 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 bigger. Contradictions in Chinese development that people have been trying to focus on over the past number of years, you know, from malinvestment, um, the state propping up, uh, you know, zombie corporations, uh, the, 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 building you know the because you want to hit certain targets the building of phantom cities uh but but even connected with that the the lack of trust and the financial system which this will by the way um exacerbate but uh, the lack of trust in the financial system that that caused um trillions of of dollars of reserves to flow out of the country so it's not that evergrande is is a uh a black swan, where everything had been going perfectly in Chinese development, and suddenly, people said, "Oh, wow! You know, look at this." And either people want to say it's just one blip, or others want to say it reveals, uh, you know, it reveals everything wrong that's been going on. But it's really been part of a of an enduring process of trying to understand Chinese development. What I think is really interesting is the debate. That people are having over it, you know, you have you have people saying, "Look, Evergrande shows that this is all a house of cards, and it's a Potemkin village." Um, uh, John Lee just wrote a piece in the the Wall Street Journal. There there are others out there, uh, and then you have other analysts like people like David Goldman at Asia Times who are saying you you're, you're still missing the, you know, the the uh, the forest for the trees, and and with the fourth industrial revolution and China's lock on uh, advanced technology, you know, these are these are really just Irrelevant. Um, in fact, didn't we have news just the other day that the Pentagon's chief uh, technology officer resigned uh, because he said that we've already lost the AI competition with China? So again, there's this this really dramatic debate going on that that Evergrande is both important in itself to understand, uh, but it's encapsulating our, our inability a little bit to what I think David Shambaugh was getting at, our inability to really know what's going on in China. I mean, what do you think, Dave, uh, John?
0: It makes you question one, whether the uh, underlying fundamentals of the Chinese economy are actually much more tenuous than people in the West think. I mean, we still have all kinds of rhetoric uh, in our political discussions about how China is beating us, how they're ahead. You know, President Biden you know, mentioned China the other day to justify the, I think, the blowout spending bill they're considering in Washington now. Uh, but if it's Based on what seems to be going with Evergrande, where uh, if you know, Chinese uh, workers and the middle class are not allowed to invest their money in many places, and so what do they do? They either uh, have them in state-owned banks, which are then lending to these real estate developers, uh, or uh, if you're uh, you know middle-class Chinese, you know vast market of financial resources. You're Uh, There, but you have limited places to put it. One place you can't put it, apparently, is real estate, and so you have this huge uh, distortion of the market, which is sending uh, excess capital into something not all that productive, uh, which is just the continuous overconstruction of large, you know, these large apartment buildings. Um, Then, if that's you know, if that's the you know underlying you know support of China's economy maybe we in the West are exaggerating the uh, threat that the competitive threat that it poses. Now you could say, well, maybe what China's doing is they have, right. This got the economy through the last 10 years, this kind of, um, you know, sort of overstimulation of construction and real estate, plus, you know, state subsidized loans to older tech, you know, older industrial tech. And they're kind of taking that and trying to leapfrog us in the high technology world, uh, Maybe that could happen. (laughs) Maybe not. Nobody's done it before. Uh, You know, I I still think our system is uh, much more stable and secure. And plus, it it gets on something that David mentioned is, um, I think there's an arrogance to these bureaucracies he's talking about. If they think they can manage not just any economy, but an economy with the largest number of people in it, you know, think of all the trillions of transactions that must occur Every day, amongst billions of people, the billion people who live in China alone, I still don't think that you know bureaucracies and people are going to you know, effectively manage something like that. And maybe that's really what you're seeing in Evergrande. Right? This is the result of the Chinese Communist Party's management of their economy.
1: Well, it goes back a little bit to what our our guest last week, um, uh, Alexander Downer, stated, which was you know everyone looks on. The the party and Chinese leaders and these days Xi Jinping as sort of geniuses. They're you know they're they're a combination of Bismarck and and Kissinger, uh, and you know FDR and their ability to understand the big macro forces and then corral them and shape them and and guide them into productive channels. And he was saying you know, no, they're, they're, these guys are. Uh, if not amateurs they they make enormous and costly strategic mistakes and in that particular case, we had been talking about the foreign policy and the foreign policy of of pressuring australia uh, but the the same argument could clearly be made about um uh, about uh, domestic policy and in, in fact again in in david Chambaugh's book he he has a uh, in the beginning he's talking about how to understand leaders and that really of course only mao you know, created the state and for better and worse, uh, and the party, uh, and all leaders since him, including Dong and including Xi have only been tinkering with it or, 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 um, you know, adding to it in, in small ways, as opposed to fundamentally restructuring it. And so again, the question of how well they actually are able to understand the very forces that they are dealing with. There's a, there were arguments I remember, um, and I again, this is quasi hearsay, but uh, I remember uh, back in you know about whatever half a decade or, or a little longer ago in DC when the big argument was why won't China help us crack down on uh, North Korea and particularly in all the ways that um, aid and financial uh, support, gets to North Korea. And this was when we had discovered that Chinese banks were continuing to make loans uh, and the like. And there were a lot of voices, or I don't want to say a lot, but there were voices in DC who were saying, yeah, but, but the party itself doesn't know what's going on in those border regions. It doesn't really have a, it doesn't have a, a firm understanding of which companies are trading with North Korea, which banks are loaning to North Korea. They hide the figures it's done under the, you know, under the table, it's off the books and the like. And so, you know, then the question was, well, is, is that accurate? Is this a way to sort of, um, uh, you know, get the party to not blame it, you know, get have it avoid responsibility? Or is it the case that that what we think of as this overpowerful techno-totalitarian state that has hundreds of millions of cameras and watches every, um, you know, every transaction that goes on uh, across WeChat and Sina Weibo is really not, as in control as we think. And, and I think again, I, I don't certainly don't have the answer. I think it gets back to something that that David Shambaugh said, which was how little we really understand what's going on in China. And as someone who did Soviet studies back in the day, and all the effort we poured into that, all the money, the years of study, the, the, the area studies groups uh and programs and the like, how little we still understood the Soviet Union. Um, so it's not that. Uh, you know, I don't want to give the, the impression that there's no answer to the question, but what I do want to say is uh, I'm not really sure we've done the, the work to, to have an accurate uh, assessment. And so Evergrande, I mean, we could come back in two months and it'll just be a blip. It was too big to fail. The party took care of it. The state absorbed the losses and, and it moved on. Or this could be the harbinger of a crack in the system, but we're not really good at understanding, trying to understand which way it's going to go. But this uh, has
0: this um, lack of information or knowledge. I think does have implications for our foreign policy towards China because if we're not really sure, uh, you know, about the decisions, how they're made, who's making them, uh, how effective they are, then it seems to me that the, the better American strategy is, um, is something more like the the defensive containment of the Cold War. Uh, rather than something like a detente, Uh, let the Chinese system collapse on its own, right? If they really are proving ineffective in in managing their economy, if it's right, as you suggest, that a lot of the growth in the economy in China was really spurred by innovation when the government wasn't really, you know, that involved, and that when the government does get involved, they tend to produce things like Evergrande. Uh, you know, which is not a tiny thing. I just looked at the statistics. I mean, Evergrande's debt debt is three hundred and five billion dollars, as it's two percent of GDP in China. That's an enormous amount of money wrapped up in just one single company's debt. Is incredible. If they go under, right, China—that's a large amount of money they're going to lose. Maybe a thing for us to do is not to consider uh, really aggressive approaches to China, but to try to contain them. Uh, and let the system collapse on its own, Um, especially when you have this world with this new leader who's trying to really tighten the grips of the party uh, in the economy. It might just produce more and more mistakes going forward. Um, That's the price that they're paying for the reimposition of this sort of heavy-handed authoritarianism. Um, And so maybe that means for us in the United States, we approach China, uh, we don't have to be as aggressive as we've been thinking uh, in terms of trade and foreign policy, I mean, I, I think it's a good idea to rebuild our alliances in the region and to rebuild our military to be more China-facing, but maybe China is going to you know decline on its own and we don't have to
1: push it over the cliff. <laughs> well, again, I mean, that's, that's why the debate, I think, is so yes. interesting and, again, the voices uh, like the Pentagon- chief technology officer david goldman and others who say no you know this you are uh, deluding yourselves if you think that its weaknesses are going to cause the system to collapse what it is doing is securing the commanding heights of the next generation of of fundamental fundamentally transformative technology that is going to give it a lock on things like financial you know fintech itself you know f- Financial technology uh, on on machine learning on AI smart learning um, uh, the the you know the new advanced uh, production uh, processes and that, that use uh, that use AI. Uh, one thing that's interesting is uh, you know everyone is concerned about the. Uh, the semiconductor chip shortage, right, and mm-hmm. and so that's affecting us in cars and and other things. Uh, but it's tied into this bigger argument about are we losing our edge uh, in semiconductor technology? And so where the U.S. Uh, and and Taiwan, of course, but the U.S. Uh, maintains the edge is in the very finest level, you know, down at the the, the three to five micron level of uh, of production. And yet what China's capturing is the the slice above that, uh, you know, the 10 micron or 15 micron level, which is not as hard to do. And that's what we use in everything. You don't need three microns in a refrigerator, right? Uh, but you're, you're doing it. F- what China's doing is being able to be dominant for automobiles and for refrigerators and for all the smart stuff that we use. Uh, and, and so again, making itself indispensable within the the larger uh, global Technology ecosystem and and the uh, the technology uh, the networks and and the chain. So uh, you know that's that's the debate that's going on. You know, as a historian, obviously, I, I would say, well, you know, we'll we'll find out. You know, it doesn't help us, but we'll find out uh, later on. But you know, should it be, as you say, a more laissez-faire, um, you know, hands-off policy to let their own mistakes accumulate? Or if we do that, is it more the argument of, of others who say that's just abetting them in exactly what they want because mm-hmm. uh, they may have financial collapse at home or, or not collapse, but, you know, Evergrande collapse at home. People will be upset. They have a big army. They have big police forces. They have paramilitary. They'll be able to squelch dissent at home. But what we actually care about is that they're going to maintain dominance abroad. So, um that that's, that's an ongoing debate. I just, I just think it's, it's worthwhile for us to recognize how little we really understand. Um, And, and to, again, to David's call that we need to get better at, at reading and listening and um, analyzing and assessing all of this. And that's just sort of a, you know, a cry in the wilderness because we've been saying it for a while now and we don't seem to be getting that much better at it. That's a very optimistic way to end this episode.
0: (laughs) So let's bring it to a close. I'm sure we're going to continue this uh, discussion and these issues uh, for many episodes to come. So on um, behalf of Misha Oslin, this is John Yu with the Pacific Century podcast from the Hoover Institution. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.